Well, good evening. If you've brought your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, we'll spend the entirety of the evening looking at this uh, chapter. But before we go and spend time in God's Word to hear from our Father, let us first go to Him in prayer asking for His favor. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we do exalt you, for there is none like you. For who can stay your hand, O God, or who can give you counsel that you should repay? Father, you are truth. And Lord, we are grateful that you have given your truth to your people. You've revealed your truth to us. And you have given us the privilege to gather together as a family to hear our Father speak. So, Father, your people are gathered expectantly today to hear from you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth. That we would be convicted by it, transformed by it. That we would put what we hear into practice so that we would be obedient and submissive children. Lord, we ask that you be glorified and honored this evening. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Church, hear God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David and no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and to the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Jake, uh, Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. 
And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maka, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maka. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall down to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hands against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out over to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoadiah, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. Here ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, many of you are probably familiar with the phrase that rules are meant to be broken, Right? Especially those silly, kind of stupid rules that don't make any good sense to us. For the people in Louisiana, where I was from before the Lord brought me here to Greensboro, it would be returning your shopping cart to the cart return. It was a hard no for them every single time. It didn't matter how many signs were put in the parking lot, return your cart to the cart return. The fine folks of Louisiana said, absolutely not. Cannot do that. So whenever you tried to put it in reverse to back out, you couldn't because the guy to the left of you and the lady to the right of you, they had placed their shopping carts right behind your vehicle so that they could leave without putting up the cart. The poor guy by the uh, end of the night had like 50 carts around his uh, car as he tries to back out. Uh, when I go to um, a grocery store and I see a bunch of shopping carts in the, uh, in the parking lot, it still gets my heartbeat going. Uh, But for others, like Jan Davis, it might have been the fact that uh, Yosemite National Park had put an end to base jumping. Now Jan, she was a professional base jumper, and she was pretty upset about this rule that they had put into place. And so she decided she was going to stick it to the man by going 
to Yosemite and jumping off of El Capitan, which is an over a 3,000-foot uh, uh, rock wall. Now, the, the irony here, the sad irony, that is that her jump caused the park's measures to only be validated as she fell to her death when her chute failed to open. Now, I don't imagine there's a, a whole host of you in here who are struggling with returning your cart to the cart return. And perhaps you've retired from your base jumping days. But I wonder if there's not an area of rebellion in your life that's going a bit unchecked this evening. And so this evening what we're going to do is look at the consequences of rebellion from multiple different vantage points. And my hope is that as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 20... Uh, you're going to see that because God has placed authority over us for our betterment, we are to refrain from rebelling against our authority. And tonight's sermon, the, the scope is not going to take into account when submitting to your authority calls into question your greater and ultimate loyalty to the Lord. That's not going to be the, the scope for this evening. So with that in mind, I want you to understand that we are to refrain from rebelling against our authority through open defiance, hidden defiance, and through the abuse of our own authority. And as we proceed through the text this evening, I want you to be thinking of what types, what forms of authority exist over you, and what authority do you exert over on others. And I want you to remember that wherever authority can be found, rebellion typically is not that far off. So this evening, our passage, it starts off with a man named Sheba. And Sheba finds himself under the authority of David, and he's not too thrilled about it. So if you will, look in your text with me at verse 1. In verse 1, we see Sheba described as a worthless man. Now there's more than meets the eye here with this term, worthless man. This term is actually used in the Hebrew before in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. It's used to describe Eli's wicked and rebellious sons who do not know the Lord. The, the Hebrew, uh, it means a man of Belial. So it's a personification of wickedness. Now, you may be wondering why is Sheba described in this way? I think there's another clue in verse 1 that kind of uh, gives us a clue to that. It's the fact that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, of course, not everybody who's from the tribe of Benjamin is a worthless individual. But who else might you be thinking about from the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, who's a fairly important character from the tribe of Benjamin? If you're thinking to yourself, King Saul, you'd be correct... And maybe that begins to help connect the dots as to why Sheba is such a thorn in David's side. In fact, it's a bit like deja vu for David. Because just four chapters earlier, if you were to look back in chapter 16, you would see that there is another relative of Saul giving David trouble. So in chapter 16, we see Shimei, who is hurling stones and hurling insults at David as he's having to flee Jerusalem because of his son Absalom's rebellion. 
And three chapters later, in chapter 19, David's returning, having put that rebellion down. And Shimei comes out to meet him. And he pleads for the king's mercy and forgiveness. He confesses his sin before the king. And David grants him that forgiveness. Well, here we are just one chapter later. And King David is dealing with another one of Saul's descendants. And I think like Shimei, Sheba was likely very upset to see David come to power. And when Absalom rebelled, that had to have been a relief for him. Kind of like when David came to power, it'd be like biting into an extremely bitter grapefruit. And then when Absalom rebels, it's a refreshing drink for him that kind of cleanses the palate. But he can't enjoy that for very long because David comes back victorious, but also bruised. And what we see here is that Sheba desires to take the king from bruised to knocked out. And so he deals treacherously with David. He openly defies and rebels against David, calling all of the men of Israel to join in with him. Now, he may make some excuses for his actions. He may say, well, I wanted to uh, go along with David, but he treated me and the men of Israel unfairly. He favored the men of Judah, and so I was compelled to rebel. But this doesn't really work, does it? Because 2 Samuel mentions twice the fact that Israel had entered into a covenant with David to follow after him as their king. And that makes Sheba a subject in David's kingdom. The subject doesn't get to sit in judgment over the king. And this is the great mistake that we see Sheba making. But unfortunately, we can relate to Sheba. All of us at some point in time, we have experienced the desire to move towards to open rebellion. Some of you children or maybe students in this room, you know what that's like. Perhaps you've had a, a parent who has reserved the right to check your cell phone whenever they want. And it upsets you. You've made the, the claim, what about my right to privacy? And you're upset that your parents are encroaching on you and not giving your space. And you're upset with them. Or maybe your parents wouldn't let you go on the summer beach trip that all your friends are going on. And you're upset with them. Don't they understand they're ruining your summer? They're killing your social status. They're just being so old-fashioned. I mean, they've, they've made statements like being concerned about uh, some of the co-ed lodging that might be taking place. Or some of the people who are coming who've run into trouble with the law with some drinking in the past. But, you know, don't they trust you? And so you decide, that's it. That's fine. If they want to make my summer difficult, I'll make theirs difficult. And you want to openly rebel against their rules in the home. What you need to understand this evening is like Sheba. Who are you to sit in judgment over your parents? That's not how it works. And like Sheba, he wasn't only rebelling against David, but he was rebelling against the Lord. After all, David wasn't the king of Israel by accident. He's not over Sheba. 
by chance. He is the Lord's anointed. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So to rebel against David is to rebel against the Lord who had provided David as a king. And so the Lord deals with Sheba's rebellion justly as he grants success to David in his conquest uh, to bring Sheba to justice. If you look in the, the Bible in verse 15, you'll see that the men of Judah, they've surrounded the town that Sheba has sought refuge in. And by verse 22, we see that the men of that town have turned on Sheba. And they lop off his head and throw it over the side of the wall to the men of Judah to take to David to prove his execution. Sheba's rebellion cost him his life. However, just as his rebellion against his heavenly king is more serious than his rebellion against his earthly king, so his ultimate consequences are more serious than his earthly death. If you look back at verse 1, you'll see some really sad words. Sheba, he states that he has no portion in David, no inheritance in the son of Jesse. The sad reality for Sheba is that this statement is likely an indicator of a greater reality at work. I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that his rebellion against God would mean that he would also have no portion and no inheritance in the son of David. And that just as he was expelled from David's kingdom, so he faces the threat of being expelled from Christ's kingdom. We must take note of the serious consequences of our rebellion, and we must recognize it for what it is. Sin which leads to death, apart from the atoning work of Christ. And so if you find yourself in this unrepentant rebellion against the authority that God has placed over you, I encourage you, don't be like Sheba, who runs from the accountability of his rebellion and dies in his rebellion, but rather be like Shimei, who went to his king And he confessed his sin and he sought his forgiveness and received it. So we see from Sheba that we are to refrain from rebelling against our authority through open defiance. But not only that, we should also refrain from rebelling against our authority through hidden defiance. And for that, we turn and look to Joab. Now, some of you may be familiar with the fact that Joab was at one point in time the commander over the armies of Israel. But he lost this position when he lost the favor of his king. And he lost this favor when he murdered Absalom, which was David's son. David had told him, had commanded him to deal gently with Absalom. And because of this, we see now in chapter 20, David's looking for a new man to lead his men. Joab is being passed over. In verse 4, we see him go to a man named 
Amasa. And he goes to Amasa and he orders him to come back in three days after collecting a group of men. But he fails to do so. And so the king discharges him of his duty. And he, in verse 6 we see that he goes to Abishai, who happens to be Joab's brother. And Joab is not too happy about this. He is not the type of guy who likes to be passed up for other people. And so when we get to verse 8, we see that Amasa is catching up with David's men. And we would expect that some sort of reckoning is going to take place between Amasa and David for failing to report back in time. But that reckoning never happens. It never happens because Joab takes matters into his own hands. Joab decides that he's going to decide who's right and who's wrong and who lives and who dies. He decides that he will take the kingly authority that belongs to David and he'll place it upon himself. He decides that he can't trust David with this matter and so he puts the trust in himself. And what we need to see is that Joab's behavior, it's conforming to a pattern. He is taking matters into his own hands so that he can gain from the the matter at hand. He's taking matters into his own hand so that he can do what's best for him. And then he's putting it off as if he's doing something that's good for Israel or good for David. When King David tells him to deal gently with Absalom, we don't see in the text him openly defy David and say, absolutely not. This guy is a traitor. This guy, he, he's a threat to you. He's a threat to Israel. If I see this guy, I'm going to kill him. You don't see that from him. And then when they capture Absalom, he tries to get other men to kill him. It's only when they don't that he takes matters into his own hands. He's a guy who takes matters into his own hands, but he tries to act like it's for the better of David, for the betterment of Israel. And what we need to understand here is that he's not only stripping the kingly duties and responsibilities away from David and placing them upon himself, but he's also rebelling against the Lord. I want you to see the fact that God nor David ever commanded Joab to take out Amasa as a judgment from God for his sin. God didn't command it. David didn't command it. God did command Israel, his people, not to murder, which includes Joab. And he's rebelling against this. He's essentially saying to God that his image bears can be taken lightly and disregarded. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're tempted to this kind of hidden defiance as well. Husbands and wives, you probably know what it's like to have that temptation of hiddenly kind of rebelling or defying your spouse. Wives, some of you probably remember uh, back to when you were dating your husband and you were so excited about the, the potential of this man one day leading your family, being the, the head of the home. But as time has 
past perhaps and you haven't seen eye to eye on everything. Maybe you've experienced that temptation to kind of undercut the feet of where your husband is trying to take the family. Maybe that's financially. Maybe that's spiritually, the church he's wanting to bring your family to. Maybe that's how you discipline the kids. But that temptation wells up to undercut what your husband is doing. Or maybe it's to take a a subtle, kind of innocent-looking word to your neighbor or to social media that demeans or belittles your husband but seems real innocent. And men, we're just as guilty of this as well. How many of you resent the authority that's been placed over you in business or at church and you think to yourselves, I would be better fit for this? And so... As your supervisor comes to you and tells you the plan, you're tempted to undercut the feet of that plan. And you think to yourself, you know, the business wants to be successful. And if we do what I'm thinking here, the business will be successful. And really, it'll make my supervisor look better. And so you let that hidden rebellion kind of fester. Or perhaps you uh, speak these subtle, seemingly innocent words These words that demean or belittle, but they seem innocent enough, like, gosh, our pastor, he must just be, he must be exhausted. I mean, he definitely wouldn't have made that decision in his right mind. We need to be praying for him, you know, that he gets some good rest. Uh, Because, again, he's a smart guy. He would have never, he would have never made that kind of decision. These kind of thoughts, actions, they need to be repented of. They need to be seen as rebellion, and they have no place in the life of a Christian. And I want you to look back to Joab and see the danger of allowing hidden rebellion to fester in your heart. Think about this. He rebels against... this. I want to, again, focus on Joab here. Joab, he kills Abner. And what happens? Nothing of super great consequence. Then he, he kills Absalom. What happens? He loses his position, which is a pretty big hit, for sure, especially to his ego. But he's still, chapter 20, he seems to be doing okay. And then we get to the more the end of the chapter, and we see, uh, we see he takes out Amasa. And what happens? Well, he's doing better than okay. He's promoted himself. And then in verse 24, it says that he goes to Jerusalem, to the king. Remember the one who had stripped him of that title? It's like Joab has this great confidence in himself that he's kind of untouchable. That David really needs him and and, and can't sideline him too hard. It kind of reminds me of some of those super athletes uh, who, who know that the coach really wants to win. And so they kind of do whatever they want knowing that the coach isn't going to pull him out of the game. He may give him a little slap on the wrist, but he's not going to pull him out of the game. That's what it seems to be that we have here with Joab. Except his confidence is causing him to be blinded to the fact that sin is crouching at his door. And it's about to pounce. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 6, David recounts Joab's rebellion to Solomon. And listen to what he says. David, talking to Solomon, act therefore according to your wisdom. 
But do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. And that should serve as a sobering reminder to any of us, a warning to any of us who would consider to foster this hidden rebellion in our hearts. Now, some of you may be thinking at this point in time, this seems like an awful lot of rebellion, an awful lot of violence. Isn't David the Lord's anointed one? He's a man after God's own heart. What's going on here? And you'd be abs- that's a great question to ask. What's going on here is the fact that David chose to rebel against his authority, against the Lord. And when he did that, the Lord allowed rebellion and violence to invade his life. And so when we look at David, we see a man who serves as an example for us that we are to refrain from abusing our authority. We're to refrain from rebelling against our authority through abusing our own authority. If you turn on the news, it doesn't take too long before you end up seeing some kind of politician or a um, community leader who suffers a meteoric fall from grace. Maybe they've broken the law or they've you know, broken some kind of social norm. Andrew Cuomo is a, a great example of this. He was one of New York's most powerful governors. And he was a surefire bet for re-election as well. Until he had to resign from his office in disgrace for a whole host of scandals. You see, Andrew Cuomo decided he was going to abuse his authority for his own gain, regardless of the cost to his fellow citizen and regardless to the fact that he was sinning against his creator. And though an infinitely better leader, 2 Samuel chronicles a somewhat parallel chapter of David's life and his leadership. You see, when David saw Bathsheba, he inquired of her. And he was told that she belonged to one of his most dedicated warriors, Uriah. Yet he didn't let that stop him. For David, it was as if an adulterous act was off limits to the people of the land, but not to the head man of the land. And so we see him steal Bathsheba away from Uriah. We see him drag Bathsheba into an adulterous relationship. We see him steal Uriah from Bathsheba as he has him executed on the battlefield. This is David, a man after God's own heart. How in the world does it get to this point? And it comes, at least in part, through a willingness to abuse authority. But just as his abuse of this authority didn't just wrong Bathsheba and Uriah, ultimately, King David was rebelling against the one who gave him that authority in the first place. And David, he acknowledges this. In Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this is why God thunders down at him through the prophet Nathan. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7-10. through 10. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little 
I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. 2 Samuel chapter 20, the passage we're looking at this evening, is evidence of God's faithfulness to keeping his word. Look at verse 6. David had just put down one rebellion, and now he's dealing with another rebellion that he says could do more harm to him than Absalom. Ever since David rebelled against his Lord, rebellion and violence have invaded his life. The Lord had given him immeasurably more than he could have ever asked for. He was a shepherd boy that even his dad didn't consider. And now he's the king of Israel. He's been given immeasurably more than he could ever ask for. And his rebellion against the Lord demonstrates a lack of faithfulness and gratefulness and honor to the one who gave him everything. And so as we've been discussing open and hidden rebellion, I've mentioned how children need to submit to the authority of their parents and how for the adults in the room, we need to submit to our authority figures. But David, what he does is he shows us that we need to refrain from rebelling against our authority by abusing our own as well. And so I'm preaching to myself when I say fathers, you aren't to take your, your authority as a father and exasperate your children. You are to tenderly love your children and to raise them to know and to love and to fear the Lord. Again, I'm preaching to myself. But husbands, you are not to abuse your authority as Ephesians 5 calls you the, the head of your wife. You're not to abuse that authority for self-seeking gain. But rather, you are to lay down your life sacrificially as Christ has loved his church. Employers, you need to realize that the Lord has given you your position. He's given you that position for you to glorify and honor him and for you to bless and serve those who are underneath you. You may have people who have to give an account to you, but we would all do well to remember that we have one over us who we will have to give an account to as well. And when you fail to properly steward that authority that's been given to you, we need to faithfully, humbly confess our sin to our Lord and receive his forgiveness, having full confidence that we will receive that, uh, that forgiveness. Look back again to David. This is a man who was conceived in iniquity, just like you and like me. And yet, God treats him as a man after God's own heart. There's hope for you, and there's hope for me when we sin. Because though our sin is great, as you know, his mercy is more. Now, that doesn't mean that we should presume that we won't face the Lord's discipline. 
I hope chapter 20 is demonstrating for you just how dangerous the consequences of our rebellious actions can be and how it not only affects us, but it can affect all of those who are close to us. Thankfully, though, amid all these dark clouds that we've looked at, open rebellion, hidden rebellion, the abuse of our own authority, there is a bright ray of light that shines forth in this text filled with dark clouds. And I want us to look now at verse 16, at the wise woman, because she helps us to see how to interact with our authority by seeking godly wisdom. In verse 16, the woman finds herself in a bit of an unfavorable situation. Much like David and Sheba, uh, Joab probably thought they found themselves in as well. However, unlike the previous three men who decide to rebel against their authority for self-gain, the woman instead seeks after wisdom. And this is what distinguishes her from the other men. And I want to look at two aspects of that godly wisdom. Because if we take what we learned this evening and we put it into action when we're dealing with our authority, we will benefit. The first aspect of this godly wisdom is that she correctly understands her identity. She sees herself as a servant to the Lord and all who come in his name. So that means when Joab, who comes in the name of the Lord's anointed one, she says to him in verse 17, listen to the words of your servant. This correct understanding of her identity, again, is what separates her from the other three. David probably saw himself as a servant to the Lord numerous times. But as we saw with Bathsheba, when he desired to have her, he attempted to throw off the lordship of God in his life. And consider Joab. When something got in the way of what Joab really wanted, the title of servant to Yahweh, servant to King David, that flew off the resume. And then, of course, Sheba, he doesn't really make any bones about it, does it? He doesn't desire to be seen as a servant to David. But he might, he might say that he was a servant to the Lord. And of course, that claim is invalidated by his refusal to submit to the Lord's anointed one. But what I want you to understand is this godly wisdom of correctly understanding your identity will just do wonders for your life when you're dealing with rebellion. So children and students, I want you to think back. If you're feeling this temptation to openly rebel against your parents, and yet you consider yourself a servant to the God who commands you to honor your father and mother, that's much more difficult to do, isn't it? When you lose that mentality of seeing yourself as a servant to the Lord, it's a little bit easier to do. But if you consider yourself a servant to God and he commands you to honor your father and mother, it is a much more difficult uh, thing to do. And likewise, for those of us who find it hard to uh, submit, to not rebel against our authority figures that uh, we come into contact in our life, if you see yourself as a servant 
to the sovereign God who has sovereignly placed these authority figures in your life, isn't it going to be much more difficult to rebel against them? And if you hold position of authority and you're tempted to use that for self-gain, isn't that more difficult when you consider yourself a slave to your master? And know that that master has given you that very authority so that you might glorify and honor him? Isn't it much more difficult to abuse that authority for self-gain when you realize that Christ used his, his office and his position for your gain and that no servant is greater than his master? You see, this, this wise woman, she steers clear of this mistake of rebelling against her authority because she correctly understands her identity. And then the second thing that she understands that I want us to to look at real briefly is that she, in her godly wisdom, brings God to the forefront of her situation in her life. Again, we see that missing in the life of these other three men. None of them seem to be focused on the Lord at all. In verse 19, she confronts Joab as he's coming to lay siege to her city. It's amazing. She stops this guy along with his men by confronting him in humility and asking him, again, in front of all of his men, will you swallow up and destroy the heritage of the Lord? I mean, she just... she. God has been missing this whole time, and then front and center, she places him right in front of Joab, and Joab doesn't know what to do with it. She reminds him how her city is a mother in Israel, a city known for wisdom, and how the people are peaceable and faithful. And when she does this, when she approaches him in humility, and when she confronts him with God seated on his throne, Joab just says, Far be it for me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. Which is, of course, rich with irony because that's all he has been doing up to this point. But this wise woman who comes in humility and confronts confronts the reality to Joab of God being seated on his throne, she stops Joab dead in his tracks from further swallowing up and destroying And so we've seen this evening that we are to avoid rebelling against our authority through open defiance and hidden defiance and through the abuse of our own authority. Instead, we've seen that we should pursue godly wisdom and interact with our authority as servants of God who recognize God in their day-to-day activities. And so as we bring this to a close this evening... I want to kind of tie things up by pointing out to you that our text started off this evening with the blowing of a trumpet. We see Sheba blowing the trumpet and then calling out every man to his tents, O Israel. The trumpet of rebellion has been blown loud and clear. And then the chapter ends near verse 22 with another trumpet that's being blown. But this time it's the trumpet of judgment. And Sheba's dead. And in between those two trumpets blowing, there's been a lot of rebellion. There's been a lot of violence. 
And it's really not too unlike our reality today, is it? Ever since the fall, man has busied himself rebelling against his authority and rebelling against the Lord, hasn't he? We've been looking at Jonah, right? We not see Jonah rebelling, the Ninevites rebelling. And so what I want you to consider this evening is will you be like the worthless men of the past, like Sheba, who died in his rebellion, or will you be like the wise woman who witnessed the retreat of destruction? If you are like Sheba, blowing on that that trumpet of rebellion, I implore you to put that down, to confess your sin before your king, to humble yourselves and know that you will receive mercy and grace. Do this before the trumpet of judgment is sounded and you lose everything. Salvation has been accomplished by Jesus, who though he was and is the king of kings, he never once abused his authority. Unlike King David, who used his position as king to better himself at the cost of his people, Jesus used his authority as king to benefit his people at great cost to himself. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Like the, the wise woman in our passage, Jesus considered himself a servant to doing his Father's will. He said, I've not come to do my own will, but of him who sent me. Therefore, he doesn't fall victim to the temptation of hidden and open rebellion that Sheba and Joab fall victim to. He found himself faced with death, and he didn't resist his authorities. But like the servant song says in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When Jesus contemplated his sacrificial death, his sacrificial death that was to be for your benefit as God's people, rebellion could not be found in his heart or on his lips. The only thing that could be heard was, Thy will be done. And so as we close this evening, I, I want to give a loving warning to all of those in here who claim to be a part of this covenant community. The warning is this. Remember Joab. Remember Joab. Because he enjoyed being in the presence of the king. He enjoyed being in the presence of the king and all the good stuff 
that came along with being in the presence of the king. But, but when the king went a direction that he didn't want, that he didn't like, he rebelled. And he grew comfortable in that rebellion. And it ended up earning him the disfavor of his king in the form of a death sentence. Do not content yourselves with being in the presence of your king and yet have your hearts far from him. Confess your sin like David. And like David, you will receive God's faithful mercy. You and I, we're going to be tempted every day of our lives to see God's authority as a burden and not a blessing. That's going to be the temptation. And so I want to remind you that better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's better to be a doorkeeper in his house than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. And that's an absolute pleasure and blessing for us to sit under the loving authority of our King and our Father. Let us go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, like a mirror, it exposes our sin. Father, we confess that many times our hearts, they're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the one that we love. Father, we need your help. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to continue to sanctify us, to continue to conform us into the image of your Son. We want to be like Christ saying more and more, thy will be done. We want to see hearts that desire to rebel disappear. Father, we want to be children who delight in their father, who obey their father because they love him and because they trust him. Father, help us to be a people who hear your word and accept it, a people who obediently and joyfully Submit to you. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.